for the textual reading to begin this morning's lesson. Second Thessalonians, chapter 1. I'll be reading verse 6 through 9. Yes. Second Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 6 through 9. It is a righteous matter with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They shall be punished with eternal destruction, isolated from the presence of the Lord, and from the glory of His power. This morning's lesson is going to be a lesson concerning the subject of hell as found in Scripture. I start with this passage, even though in this passage the word hell is not used at all. But the description is well presented of that time in which the Lord returns with His powerful angels. And judgment is made on those who are unrighteous, those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, as stated in verse 8. The presentation of the punishment to those who do not know God nor have obeyed the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is stated in verse 9. Listen, it says, They shall be punished with eternal destruction, a condemnation, a destruction of the soul of the person that is not temporary but is everlasting, eternal destruction, isolated from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. So there is a separation between those who will be condemned and those who will be saved. They will be shut out. They will be isolated. They will be completely and eternally removed from being in the presence of God and from the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we note here two things concerning the result of the coming judgment. And we might also refer to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, where it says it's appointed a man to die, and then comes judgment. So each one of us, upon death or upon the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with His powerful angels, must address the reality that there will be a time of judgment. And to those who do not know God and have not obeyed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we know here two things presented concerning the punishment to those who are condemned. That it is everlasting, it is eternal, it is without end. There is no recovery, there is no redemption after the judgment is fixed. And that you will not be able to participate in nor to see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and the majesty of God Almighty you'll be separated from Him for eternity. Now, in the Bible there are terms that are translated into the English word hell. And I'd like to address those first off as to what are the terms translated into the English word hell found in the New Testament. The first one, I give you those that are used less frequently going to those that are used most frequently in, uh, you do recognize that the New Testament was originally written in the Greek language, translated into English for our benefit. So they are, first off, the word chasma, 
You might know the transliterated word chasm, or often translated gulf. A great divide. A wide and great divide is a chasm. Chasm is the Greek word that's used only one time in Luke chapter 16 and verse 26. Luke 16, verse 26. This is the recounting of the story of the rich man and Lazarus you might be familiar with. The rich man, the rich man had desired for relief from his place of torment. Verse 26 says, And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf. That is that Greek word, chasma. There is a great gulf, so that those who would pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. So we see here in this time of judgment having been passed in the life of the rich man now coming unto death. He is separated by a great chasm. A great gulf is fixed between them so that he is in a fixed destiny of torment and is not able to come and be with those in paradise. The second term is Tartarus, also only used one time in the New Testament, found in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Tartarus. If God did not spare the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, that's the word there for Tartarus, the Greek term. I read it again, beginning at the beginning of verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels that sinned, but cast them down to Tartarus, to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be kept for judgment. I suppose I should go on. If he did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, making them an example to those afterward who would have lived ungodly lives, if he delivered the righteous lot who was distressed by filthy conduct of the wicked, for the righteous man lived among them, and what he saw and heard of their lawless deeds tormented his righteous soul day after day, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. So you see back there in verse 4 that God did not spare the angels that sinned, those that rebelled along with Satan. They were cast out of the heaven, but cast them down to Tartarus, which is the underworld the underworld, the Tartarus, the underworld, that place where Satan ultimately will spend his eternity and where angels were cast down from heaven above. Third is abyssos, or abyss, as it's transliterated. You know an abyss is the deep, sometimes the great sea, the oceans are referred to in history as the deep. Uh, as the abyss. For example, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, where Paul is referring to how he spent night and day adrift in the deep. As sailors of old often use this phrase of the deep, meaning the ocean, whose bottomless end they did not know. It was so deep in the ocean, especially like if you're in the Pacific, we now know it's so deep. And the sailors would lose their lives as they went out and they would fall into the deep. And so we see it used here in 2 Corinthians 11.25 by the Apostle Paul when he spent a day and a night adrift in the sea. Also Romans chapter 10 verse 7, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 13, 
refers as well to abyssos as the sea. Luke chapter 8 verse 31 also uses this term. It's used ten times. Abyssos is ten times used in the New Testament. In Luke 8 31 we have the account of Legion, the man who was filled with many demons. You remember that those demons, where did they not want to be cast? They did not want to be cast into the abyss. Luke chapter 8, verse 31. Well, let's start at verse 29. He commanded the unclean spirits to come out of the man. It often had seized him. He was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles. When he broke the shackles, he was driven by the demons into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, What is your name? He said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to go out into the abyss. That is this term, abyssos. And it's used seven times, seven of the ten times in the book of Revelation. Just for a sampling, we'll go to the familiar usages in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 and 3. So of the ten times, it seems the Apostle John, in writing the book of Revelation, liked to use this word abyssos most frequently, as it's used seven times here. <coughs> Look, if you will, Revelation 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit. There's abyssos and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Verse 3. He cast him into the bottomless pit, the abyss, and shut him up, and set a seal on him, that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were ended, and that he must be set free for a little time. So here we understand the meaning of abyssos as applied and translated into the word hell. That it's a bottomless pit. It's the great deep. It's, a, it's an abyss to where those who are corrupt, those who are wicked, are cast down into. The fourth term translated into hell is Hades, used 11 times in the New Testament. Meaning the place of the dead or the grave. Interestingly, it's used by Matthew twice, Luke five times, and John in the book of Revelation four times. Now, the word Hades is a, a Greek word translating in the Septuagint, which was the Hebrew, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew scripture, the word Sheol. The word Sheol meaning the grave in the Hebrew. Looking for a corresponding word in Greek, the word translated Sheol got translated into the Greek term Hades. And in the Greek mind, and in Greek mythology, the term Hades was used of the place of the unseen dead. You know, when somebody dies and they're buried in the ground, where are they? I don't know, I can't see them. I can't lay my eyes upon them. Where did they go? Hades was the Greek reply. They went to the place of the dead. Sometimes thought of as the place of unseen spirits. Interestingly, in the Hebrew scriptures, there's not a, as much of the spiritual context 
with the word Sheol, often meaning just simply where the dead people go, and that is the grave. They go to the grave. But Hades brought with it a concept more than just death as the grave, the place where the dead go, but that there was maybe an ethereal place where un, uh, unseen spirits of the dead resided. So bear that in mind as we look at some of the usage for the word Hades. And perhaps why Matthew does not use it so frequently as Luke does mostly because he's writing to a Greek audience. <coughs> Let's look at Acts chapter 2. Three times Luke uses it in Acts. Twice in the book of Luke. And in Acts chapter 2, we have the day of Pentecost and the preaching of the gospel. The first time those who accepted the gospel, verse 31, says that they were baptized into Christ. Acts chapter 2. Let's look at the sermon here, represented by Peter and the eleven apostles. We'll see this three times. If you're taking notes, verse 24, 27, and verse 31. Speaking of how Jesus was crucified and killed, verse 24 says, Whom God raised up by loosening the pool of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And you know that reference there is the tomb of his death could not keep its grip on him. And he was raised back to life. Note verse 27. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. In other words, after he'd been crucified and his dead body was laid in the tomb, God did not permit his body to rot and decay in the grave. He was brought back to life. Hence verse 31, where it states, he foresaw this and spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. His body didn't corrupt, rot, and decay, because God raised him back to life. Forty days he walked on the earth after being murdered, after being buried in the tomb. But his body did not rot and grave in Hades, or perhaps the meaning or the concept more rather than the pit, for the abyss, but rather that of which his body did not rot in the grave. These also could be seen in Revelation chapter 6, where John uses it four times after Luke, the, the next greatest usage, four times in Revelation. We'll just look, well, we'll look at all four of these rather quickly. Revelation chapter 6, verse 8. So it does contain the idea of a place of hell after one dies, that eternal punishment, it carries more with it the concept of the grave of the dead than perhaps, as Abyssos did, of the great deep or the bottomless pit. Chapter 6 and verse 8. 
So I looked, and there was a pale horse. Now you know this, don't you? Any of you Clint Eastwood fans out there, the Love Old Westerns, you know the pale rider? He comes riding in on that pale horse, and he never says his name. I don't know if you ever watched that movie. Uh, if you haven't, and you wish to look at it again, he never says his name. And people ask his name in the movie. He never says his name. Not once in the entire movie. They try to get him to say his name a, a few times in the movie. What's your name? And he doesn't utter it. You're supposed to know. Here's the reference. So I looked, and there was a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death. And Hades, is your word, followed him. Death in the grave. That's what he brought when he came into town on the pale horse. Consider also verse 20 of the same chapter, chapter 6, verse 20. Oh, there is no verse 20. I'm sorry. Let's go to chapter 20. Chapter 20. Verse 13 and 14. We'll only look at three of these in Revelation. There are four. Chapter 20, verse 13 and 14. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one by his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Now consider what he says here at this time of final judgment. The sea gave up the dead. When Christ comes back, all are going to appear before judgment, not just those who are living on the earth when he returns, but also that are already deceased, those who died out in the sea. They will be raised up. The sea will give up the dead who are in it, death in the grave. If I may say Hades there with that inclination, death and those who are buried in the ground will be delivered up. They'll be raised up also, along with those who died in the sea. And they were judged, each one, by his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Now perhaps the eternal place of torment is the lake of fire. And what's going to be thrown into there? Because death and the grave are destroyed by the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, and only those who are outside of Christ face this eternal punishment as death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire. And this is the second death. Your first death is when your physical body stops working, when they lay your body into the ground. That's what we often think of as death. Oh no, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. That's your first death, when your body stops working. But beware about your soul and the second death. Even greater importance than what happens to your physical body is what can happen to your soul after you're dead. Beware of the second death. That place of torment and the fire. Which leads us to the final and last term. Greek term translated into hell in the New Testament. The word Gehenna. Which is going to carry with it much. The idea of fire. Gehenna is used the most times, it's used 12 times, and mostly by Matthew, because it has a connection in the Jewish mind. Not so much in the Greco-Roman world, but in the Jewish mind. And so we see that Matthew uses it 7 of the 12 times, Mark 3 times, Matthew once, or I'm sorry, Luke once, John, who writes more to a Roman audience, doesn't use the term at all. fact, it's only used one time outside of the Gospels. Once. And that's by James. And we just studied James 
who was very much a leader amongst Jewish Christians, writing to Jewish Christians, and therefore perhaps we find its usage as he, of a Jewish mind, writes to Jewish people. And this is very much an idea as it's used by James and by Matthew, who also writes his gospel to a Jewish audience. And so they've got a connection because this is a, well, Gehenna is historically derived from a real place on the earth. It was in, a, in the minds of the people who were Jewish because it was the southernmost boundary, uh, or, or, or oh, what should I say, ravine. No, that's not the right word. Valley. Valley, thank you. That's what Gay means. Gay and Gehenna is valley. There you go. Gehenna is the Hennem Valley. Very well. I only got so much time. Thanks for the help. Keep it brief. Sorry about that. I do like the help, but there you are. So, Gehenna is a valley on the southern part of the city of Jerusalem. You recognize that Jerusalem is like a mount, a raised mount. Hence, it's sometimes called Mount Zion. And as that raised mount or plateau, it's surrounded by valleys. You had the Kidron Valley. But I'm here to talk to you now a little bit more about this valley of Gehenna. More anciently, in Jewish history, recognized as Ben-Hinnom. And in it, the first time, that this uh, word Gehenna is used is in the Hebrew translation, the Hebrew scriptures translated in the Septuagint, as I'd already mentioned, prior to the coming of Christ. And you first run into it in the Septuagint in Joshua, chapter 15, verse 8, where he's laying out the boundaries of the twelve tribes of Israel. And it's specific to the description of the tribe of Judah, one of those twelve tribes, Judah's northernmost boundary, which comes up to the south, that southern valley of Jerusalem. And he refers to that northern boundary as Gehenna. A translation of the Hebrew, Ben-Hinnom. Well, let's look at the Old Testament history that the Jews would have known very well, being that they were the ones who received the law and the prophets. Let's start in the law in Leviticus. Here, Moses, in writing Leviticus, seems prophetic in his warnings in the law concerning what's going to happen in the future in this valley. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 21. You shall not let any of your children be offered through the fire to Moloch, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Now i got to tell you about this Moloch because he's going to come into the history of the Old Testament. We're looking at the law now. Moloch is already here referred to. Moloch was a false idol with like the body of a man and the head of a bull with horns and all, with hands outstretched. Sometimes he had like seven compartments in which they would put different things to be sacrificed to this false god, Moloch. Moloch, likely translated king, MLK, often translated in Hebrew to be king. And so instead of the king of all kings, God Almighty, the creator of life, heavens and the earth, they built with their own human hands a god of bronze, a bronze statue that they then made sacrifices. And in one of those compartments, or in his outstretched hands, they laid innocent infant children to be sacrificed to this fake god. And in that sense, they'd be burned alive. 
And so God, in His law, warned them that they shall not let any of their children be offered through the fire to Moloch. Consider also Leviticus chapter 20, verses 2 through 5. Again, you shall say to the children of Israel, whoever from the children of Israel, or from the foreigners who sojourn in Israel, who gives any of his children to Moloch, he shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him. I'll set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people, because he has given some of his descendants to Moloch to defile my sanctuary and defile my holy name. If the people of the land in any way hide their eyes from the man when he gives his children to Moloch and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his family. I will cut them off from their people, both him and those who follow after him, as whores after Moloch. Such an abomination before God that the people of Israel would take their little children and be sacrificed to this fake God, Moloch. So what happened in the history of the people of Israel? Let's look at some of the historical accounts in the books of history. Let's start in 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 28. During the reign of Ahaz, King Ahaz. 2 Chronicles 28. Look at the beginning of the chapter in the first three verses. Ahaz, king of Judah. This is the time period after the divided kingdom. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. We're talking about the southern kingdom of Judah. Ahaz became king when he was 20 years old. He was king in Jerusalem for 16 years. He did not do what was correct in the eyes of the Lord as David his father. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. And he cast images for Baal worship. And he made sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. There's your Gehenna. He made sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, and he burned his sons in the fire according to the detestable acts of the nations that the Lord had displaced before the sons of Israel. Now there was some merging in certain cultures in the land of Canaan between Moloch and Baal. Sometimes there was distinction between the two, sometimes there was merger between the two, because there were many peoples in that land. Now, have you heard of Asherah? Asherah poles? Baal was like the idol of idols, like the father of idols, and his wife, if you will, was Asherah. Ashtoreth. And they had Asherah poles on high places, and when it talks in the Old Testament about high places, it's not talking about high places to worship God Almighty, the God of Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, and Jacob, but high places for idol worship. And in those high places, they made Asherah poles, and oh, how can I politely say it? I don't think I can. I'll do as well as I can. They had like prostitutes to dance around Asherah poles as part of the idol worship. They had idol prostitutes. And they would dance around the Asherah poles and entice men to do wickedness and evil. Some historians have suggested that perhaps the children that were being sacrificed were those that were because of the intercourse between the people of Judah and the idol prostitutes. They were unwanted babies. 
They don't want to bring them home and disgrace their household because they had them with an idle prostitute. So what to do with the child? They made it like a sacred thing. Although before God it was absolutely abominable, deplorable, horrific to take an innocent child and sacrifice that child to Baal. That's what happened. And you know where it happened? In that valley called Gehenna. Now you see how impressed in the Jewish mind this is going to become a place of disaster, destruction, and evil. Let's continue on to 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verses 1 through 9. Manasseh now is king of Judah. He was 12 years old when he became king, and he was king in Jerusalem for 55 years. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations, whom the Lord previously cast out before the sons of Israel. And he turned again to build the high places that his father Hezekiah had torn down. His father had torn down those high, those high places, those places of idol worship. And here's Manasseh rebuilding it. He set up altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles and worshipped the starry assembly of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord where the Lord said, In Jerusalem my name will be perpetual. And he built altars for the starry assembly of heaven in the two courtyards of the house of the Lord. He even made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of ben -Enum. And he had conjurers and practitioners of divination and sorcery and necromancers and mediums. So he did a great amount of evil in the eyes of the Lord so that God was provoked. And he set the carved image of a statue that he made and put in the house of God. For God said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, where I have chosen from among all the tribes of Israel, there I have set my name perpetually. And I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the ground that I had designated to your fathers. If only they will keep on doing everything I have commanded them, and the whole law, statutes, and judgments from the, hands, uh, from the hand of Moses. So Manasseh made Judah and those living in Jerusalem to wander and to perform more evil than the nations that the Lord destroyed from before Israel. He brought his people Israel into the promised land. After bringing up a generation that wandered 40 years in the wilderness, and all those men that were over the age of 20, minus the two spies that believed, were put to death in that wilderness during that 40 years. But new were born. A new generation had learned to trust in the Lord, and they entered in, and they were successful in taking the promised land. And God had wiped out those nations before them in that land of Canaan, the promised land. But here under Manasseh, they became more evil than even those nations that were cast out before them. The height of this evil wickedness was the sacrificing of children to a handmade fake God. Something that did not even enter into God's mind that should be done. As the prophet Jeremiah says, quickly let us go to Jeremiah, and two accounts in Jeremiah, chapter 7, beginning of verse 30. Jeremiah, chapter 7. 
And you'll notice a new name that this valley is to be called as we read Jeremiah 7, verse 30 through 34. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, says the Lord. They've set their abominations in the house, which is called by my name, to pollute it. Even right there in God's house, in the holy place, they set up this idol God. Verse 31, they built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of Beninim, there's Gehenna, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command them, nor did it come to my heart. Therefore, truly, the days are coming, says the Lord, and will be no more called Topheth, nor the valley of Beninim, nor the valley, but it will be called the valley of slaughter. Now, do you understand in the Jewish mind, this is a place of wickedness where God's will is not performed, where their sons and their children are sacrificed and be burned. Can you think of something more evil and wicked? This is the height of abomination that's connected to this valley called Gehenna. In fact, he says, from now on, it will be called the Valley of Slaughter. Jeremiah chapter 19, verse 1 through 6. Thus says the Lord, go and buy a potter's earthen bottle and take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests. Then go out to the Valley of ben -Hinnom. There's Gehenna which by, is by the entry of the Potsdam Gate, and proclaim there these words that I will tell you, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I will bring such disaster upon this place, if, which whoever hears of it, his ears shall tingle, because they have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods, whom neither they, their fathers, nor the kings of Judah have known, and have filled this place with the blood of the innocent, and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore surely the days are coming, says the Lord, when this place shall be no more called Topheth, or the valley of Beninim, but the valley of slaughter. I will make void the council of Judah and Jerusalem in this place. I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hands of those who seek their lives. And the corpses I will give to be food for the fowl of the heavens and the beasts of the earth. I will make this cry desolate, or I'll make this city desolate and hissing. Everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss because of all the wounds. I will cause them to eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters and everyone who eat the flesh of his friend in the siege and distress with which their enemies and those who seek their lives will distress them. And God's word came to pass as such did occur in the history of Israel and Judah. So in the New Testament when this word Gehenna is applied and translated hell. It depicts in the Jewish mind the worst possible, most abominable place that could be conjured in the mind. And as in the New Testament, the word is referred not as to the literal place on material earth, but the eternal destiny of souls which are condemned. Because 
what more evil could you think of than the battle of Gehenna? Time is running short. So we will not go through all of those verses in the New Testament. Perhaps one should be sufficient. Let's go to Luke's sole use as he wrote to the Greeks. Luke 12, verse 5. Luke 12, verse 5. I'll start at verse 4. Jesus speaking. In fact, all of the gospel usages are found in the words of Jesus himself. Twelve times Gehenna is used in the New Testament, once by James, and all of the other times by Jesus. Luke 12, beginning verse 4, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. Don't fear those who can kill the flesh. says, but I will warn you whom you shall fear. Fear him who after he is killed has power to cast you into Gehenna, into hell. That abominable, wicked place where such horrible things were done in the days of old. We ought to be concerned and take warning. Not to be concerned just with the death of our body, what will happen to our soul after our body is dead? The good news is that through Jesus Christ, there is hope, there is salvation, there is eternal life. But those who would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who would have the courage to confess with their own mouths that Jesus is Lord, who would be repentant of their waywardness and their sinfulness, and would come and be joined together with Christ through baptism. That as he died for our sins according to Scripture, as he was buried in the tomb, as he was raised on the third day according to Scripture, as was testified to by the apostles and by more than 500 believers at one time. Forty days he gave evidence concerning his power over the grave. Because he was raised back to live being a scene ascended to the right hand of the Father. He lives today to forgive us of our sins. So the wicked place of hell does not have to be our destination. But the wonderful and holy place of joy with God in His presence, seeing His majesty forevermore in heaven. If you have need this morning to come to Christ, if you still have the guilt of your sins, upon you in your mind and in your heart. If you've not found forgiveness of sin through the blood of Jesus Christ, we sing a song to invite you to make the decision. Come and receive the eternal reward that's been gained for us through Jesus. Will you come as we sing this song of invitation?
Oh, how sweet, oh, how sweet, oh, how sweet, oh, 